0: Another edition of Fighting for the Faith Friday, November 5th, 2010 Mm -mm -mm. Mm -mm -mm. Friday light today And a good one tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, to help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. It's necessary to do this because uh, we need to contend earnestly for the biblical faith, the one that has been handed down to us, the faith once for all. Delivered to the saints, yeah. It, we don't get to change it, yeah. He, he, this the idea here is is that Christianity is like, well, it's like one of those track races where you know where they have they pass the baton, yeah. That yeah, you know, it's 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 a relay, and so here's the idea, you know, the apostles receive their doctrine and teaching from Christ. They passed it on to their disciples. Their disciples passed it on to their disciples. So the idea is is that the baton of the Christian faith gets passed forward to each generation. No generation gets the privilege of reworking, retooling the baton, or worse, chucking the one that's been handed to them, making their own, and then passing that along as if it's the Christian faith. You don't get to do that. And so, uh, unfortunately, there's a lot of folks out there running the Christian race with a <clears throat> counterfeit baton, if you would. So that's one of the reasons why we do what we do. Today's edition of Fighting for the Faith, though, is, uh, is, is a good uh, Friday Light. No, no a lot of times i you know, let me tell you what we're gonna do. I'm getting ahead of myself. My brain is like running ahead and I've I've got to slow down, slow down. I haven't spoken those words yet. Brain, I have to get, help people understand where we're going. Uh on Friday Light, what we do is it is we it's a generally it's a little bit of a shorter program. I don't cover a spectrum of things, and uh I usually try to find something good for us to listen to that I think will help us In understanding scripture, understanding doctrine, uh, you know, whatever, whatever, something that goes a little bit more in depth. And I usually hand my microphone off to somebody with far better credentials than I have. And so, you know, when I left for um, when I left for Portland, I turned the mic over to J.I. Packer. And uh, you think, no, he didn't sit in studio. I just played some lectures. So today I'm going to hand my microphone off to Phil Johnson. And no, he's not in studio. You know, Phil and I haven't uh, met face-to-face in person yet. We've video chatted, but we've never met face-to-face. And the last couple times I played Phil Johnson, I put him into the sermon review time, you know, in the good, the bad, and the ugly. But today he's, well, I'm promoting him. Yeah, it's true. I'm promoting Phil Johnson. Phil, don't let this go to your head. Yeah, yeah, you you get to share a seat next to J.I. Packer now. (laughs) I can't believe I said that. Anyway, moving a lot. Phil Johnson recently uh did a series of lectures in Virginia at uh Colonial Baptist Church and Central Baptist Theological Seminary. And uh one of the things that Phil Johnson uh, one of the topics of Phil Johnson I think as a as a lay theologian has really grasped on to is um it's uh, the topic of uh, Charles Spurgeon. He knows – he's forgotten more about Spurgeon than I've even read or, or learned or anything like that. So um, I, I consider him to be uh, uh, basically a self-taught expert in regards to Charles Spurgeon, and he recently – gave a lecture. He gave a series of lectures. He talked about assurance. Uh, he talked about contending uh, for the faith in postmodern times. He gave a lecture on uh, Spurgeon the Controversialist. And um, and then also he also gave another lecture on preaching the word when it's out of season. And so uh, what I'm going to play for you today is the lecture that he uh, delivered on Spurgeon the Controversialist. And it's well worth listening to. And uh, not only is it is it a good biblical look at what it means to contend for the faith, but it also gives us insight into uh, into Spurgeon, uh, who who really he's well liked among many different circles. And I, I have I have a deep and abiding respect for Spurgeon, although I disagree with Spurgeon and think that he didn't correctly teach regarding the doctrine of baptism. That being the case, there's much that we can learn from Spurgeon, and it's always good to hear. A lecture from somebody who actually knows the subject. And so uh, Phil Johnson does a fantastic job in this lecture, and it's worth passing along to you. So uh, without any further ado, and Phil, don't let this go to your head. Yes, I know the the idea of you sharing the important seat here at Fighting for the Faith next to J.I. Packer and others. Yeah. Anyway, here is uh, Phil Johnson on uh, Charles Spurgeon, the controversialist.
1: Yeah, now you might think there's a disconnect between Hour 1 and Hour 2. Hour 1 is about contending for the faith in a, in, in a postmodern era. And, and I want to switch topics and sort of look back into history, and we're going to talk about Spurgeon the Controversialist, Spurgeon the Warrior. Uh, I think it's well known that Spurgeon had a lot of fight in him. But I want to stress, he was not a willing controversialist. He wasn't the type of personality that relished disputes or took pleasure in nonstop combat. He despised conflict. And yet, as you read his life story, you'll discover he was embroiled in one kind of conflict or another for practically the entire uh, life of his ministry. And if your knowledge of Spurgeon is only superficial, you might not realize that about him. Today, it sometimes seems as if Spurgeon is universally beloved. He's quoted and admired by Arminians and Calvinists alike. He is claimed by both charismatics and non-charismatics. He is the closest thing Baptists have to a patron saint. And it doesn't matter what flavor of Baptists you're talking about, practically everyone from the strictest hyper-fundamentalist groups to so-called moderate Baptists who are really Liberals in moderate clothing, you know, willing to compromise just about everything. Arminians and pragmatists alike, including some of the most worldly and seeker-sensitive types, Baptists always say they love Spurgeon, and not just Baptists. One of the most interesting books about Spurgeon was written by Helmut Thalake, who was a famous German, Lutheran, neo-Orthodox theologian. Thalake's book is called encounter with Spurgeon, and some of it is quite good, especially if you bear in mind that Thalicke is German, Lutheran, and Neo-Orthodox, and he writes from that perspective. In fact, listen...
0: I just want to say, Phil, that um, we confessional Lutherans, we don't look at the Neo-Orthodox as, well, w- yeah, I, I don't see them as Lutherans. You can't mix Lutheranism and Neo-Orthodoxy because then you lo- lose the Lutheran part. To,
1: this is Helmut Thalicke writing in a totally different context. This is not from his book about Spurgeon, but he, this will give you an idea of what kinds of things he represented and believed. This is from his book, The Evangelical Faith. And evangelical, of course, in German Lutheran terminology, means something different than the word evangelical means to you and to me. And particularly in Helmut Thalicke's day, it was, it was all about neo-orthodoxy. But here's what he said, quote, To do theology is to actualize Christian truth, to understand it afresh. Theology has nothing to do with timeless truth.
0: Yeah, you're kind of making my point there. Yeah, See, as soon as you do the neo-Orthodoxy thing, you lose the Lutheran part because that's just absurdity.
1: Now, that's a more or less typical neo-Orthodox perspective. Thalicke, listen to him. He's, He's saying that theology... Uh, doing theology is about actualizing Christianity. It's not about affirming or making any sense of truth in any propositional form. Doing theology is, he says, about understanding religion afresh, about recontextualizing faith in a new way for every generation. And notice that he expressly says it has nothing to do with timeless truths. Those are his words. And yet... Thalecki admired Spurgeon for doing theology in precisely the way Helmut Thalecki said theology is not supposed to be done. Listen to a different text from Helmut Thalecki. same guy wrote this, and you'll find this hard to believe. This is, these are the opening paragraphs of his book, Encounter with Spurgeon. He writes this, quote, In the midst of the theologically discredited 19th century, there was a preacher who had at least 6,000 people in his congregation every Sunday, whose sermons for many years were cabled to New York every Monday and reprinted in the leading newspapers of the United States, who occupied the same pulpit for almost 40 years without any diminishment in the flowing abundance of his preaching and without ever repeating himself or preaching himself dry. The fire he thus kindled and turned into a beacon that shone across the seas and down through the generations was no mere brush fire of sensationalism, but an inexhaustible blaze that glowed and burned on solid hearths and was fed by the wells of the eternal word. Here was the miracle of a bush that burned with fire and yet was not consumed. Look, he says, in no way was Spurgeon like the managers of a modern evangelistic campaign who manipulate souls with all the techniques of mass suggestion, acting like salvation engineers. Charles Haddon Spurgeon was still unaware of the wiles of propaganda. He worked only through the power of the word, which created its own hearers and changed souls. Now, this was not his word, the product of his own rhetorical skills, It was, rather, a word which he himself had merely heard. He put himself at its disposal as a mere echo. His message never ran dry because he was never anything other than a recipient. And he goes on to say, and again, these are his words, it would be well for a time like ours to learn from this man. I read that and I thought, you know what? Thalake himself might have been a more reliable and more edifying professor of theology if he had taken his own counsel to heart and learned at Spurgeon's feet how to deal with the Word of God and how to do theology. Amen, amen,
0: and amen. Exactly, precisely. Mm-hmm.
1: But my point here is one I'm sure you've heard before. Almost everyone today wants to claim Spurgeon. 20th century historians and biographers have turned Spurgeon into a big, lovable teddy bear who is perfectly safe, always devotional, doctrinally nondescript, ecumenically broad, theologically whatever they want to make of him. It was John R. Rice who used to publish in The Sword of the Lord Spurgeon's sermons, and he would edit out the Calvinism to make Spurgeon seem like an Arminian.
0: (laughs) It just makes me wonder if there's any Lutherans out there that uh, claim Spurgeon as a Lutheran. Yeah, no, that's just not going to work, is it? No, as a Lutheran, I have deep respect for him. I have deep theological convictions that he did not correctly understand the Scripture at some points, and he would say the same of me. Uh, that being the case, there is much that is to be respected, admired, um, really, in, uh, regarding Spurgeon. Why? Because... He was not trying to come up with his own cute little theology. No, he was really deeply concerned about correctly handling God's word and passing the baton forward without changing it. Important stuff. Here, let's continue.
1: In reality, Spurgeon was none of those things. He was a convinced doctrinaire Calvinist. He was an outspoken critic of everything novel or superficial in theology. He was despised and ridiculed as a hopelessly narrow doctrinal dinosaur. He was engaged in one controversy or another for practically the whole of his ministry. And in the face of modernism and broad church ecumenism, which were rife in his day, he became a rigorous separatist. In short, Spurgeon embodied everything neo-orthodoxy rejects about historical evangelicalism. He was the living emblem of everything today's stylish evangelicals despise about historic fundamentalism. He was a strong, vocal defender of practically every doctrine postmodernist and emergent Christians have ever tried to challenge. He firmly believed the offense of the cross ought to be declared openly and paraded in public, not downplayed for the sake of people who might be offended by the truth of the gospel. And my goal in this hour is to give you a little glimpse of the real Spurgeon, true and unvarnished. Although he was criticized as outdated and derided as a theological fossil in his own time, Spurgeon still speaks to our age. Ironically, those who were perceived as stylish and forward-looking in Spurgeon's era are the ones who we look at as outmoded and mostly forgotten today. We barely remember only a few of them. Joseph Parker, for example, who savagely criticized Spurgeon, even at Spurgeon's debt. He wrote a hostile sort of uh, uh, eulogy for Spurgeon. He, he obviously held Spurgeon in contempt because he thought Spurgeon was old-fashioned and too contentious about doctrine. Parker studiously kept up with Victorian fashions. He scandalized Spurgeon by hanging out with London's theater crowd and boasting about his familiarity with worldly things. Joseph Parker was the author of Parker's People's Bible. You'll still see that in secondhand bookshops. It's probably a copy in the seminary library here. But no one reads it anymore. And it's too much of a product of its own time to be very useful today so that the tables have turned. It's Parker who sounds to us quaint and old-fashioned, and Spurgeon still speaks as powerfully as ever. (laughs) Great point.
0: Absolutely true. That's the best part about it. Listen, God's word never goes out of style. Never And the reason why Spurgeon is still listened to and admired today is because he was preaching the word of God. That's right. So we remember him really not because Spurgeon was so clever. No. Because he was emboldened by the Holy Spirit to not waver to not quake in his boots, to not capitulate to the culture, to not capitulate to the times. Mm-hmm. It makes you wonder, you know, who will be, you know, a hundred years from now, should the Lord tarry? Will people be quoting Rick Warren? I don't think so. Will they be quoting Robert Shuler? Not on your life. No way hundred years from now, the people, you know, Christians, if the the Lord should tarry, might remember some of the guys who boldly stood up for the truth in today's culture and gave the timeless message of God's word and the gospel and Christ and him crucified. But I guarantee you, a hundred years from now, no one's going to remember Robert Shuler. Rick Warren, Bill Hybels. Perry Noble, yeah, right.
1: All of Spurgeon's works are still in print and still relevant to us, still influential. Even the battles Spurgeon fought are still echoes of the battles we're fighting today. Practically all of his controversial writings are as timely now as the day they were written, which suggests that Spurgeon chose his battles well. You'll find as you read the key works of Spurgeon that certain points of controversy run all the way through his ministry from the first to the finish. He often described himself as battle-weary, but he never backed away from the fight. And indeed, Spurgeon himself and most of his biographers believed that the stress of controversy hastened his death, the downgrade controversy, which consumed the final five years of Spurgeon's life was a particular stress to him, and I I believe it did contribute to his early death. But neither the pain of stress nor the reality of controversy was anything new to Spurgeon when the downgrade controversy broke out in 1887. This was merely the final recapitulation of the pounding theme that reverberated through Spurgeon's life from the time he began his ministry in London until the day he died. And I think we can learn a lot from studying Spurgeon's battles and observing how faithfully and how fiercely he fought, seldom for his own reputation or stature, but always for the truth and honor of God. He, he, he did not model the sort of contentiousness that made so much of American fundamentalism in the second half of the 20th century seem odious to everyone. He wasn't like that at all. But he chose his battles well, as I said. And he always fought for the honor of God, not for a movement, not for himself, not for his own reputation, but for the truth of Scripture and the honor of God. As I said, Spurgeon was a reluctant controversialist. I don't think he had any expectation that wave after wave of controversy would assault him, but it did from the time he first accepted a call to the New Park Street Chapel in London. Spurgeon went to London as a 20-year-old. He was a very young man. he had also lived his entire life in the rural regions of England, and so he was not a city boy, and he didn't fit in well. And he was immediately lampooned by cartoonists. He was attacked in print by newspaper columnists. He was criticized viciously by other ministers who were jealous of his success or hostile to his doctrine, and he was relentlessly mocked. By the enemies of everything holy. And let's face it, Spurgeon was a bit of a country bumpkin when he first came to London. He had no sense of style or sophistication, and that made it hard to get by in London in those days. London was the most, as it is even today, the most cosmopolitan city in the world. Spurgeon's wife was a teenage girl when Spurgeon first preached at New Park Street. He was called there as a guest speaker as they considered whether to call him as a pastor. And she was there. And she recalled how the thing that caught her attention on that first Sunday was a polka-dotted handkerchief that he, he pulled out of his pocket and kept waving as if to add flourish to his gestures. And here's what she said years later. This is his wife remembering what it was like, like to see Spurgeon for the first time as a young girl. And she said this, if the truth be told, I was not at all fascinated by the young orator's eloquence, while his countrified manner and speech excited more regret than reverence. This is his wife. So you know she loved him. But and she says, Alas, for my vain and foolish heart, I was not spiritually minded enough to understand his earnest presentation of the gospel and his powerful pleading with sinners. But the huge black satin stock... The long, badly trimmed hair, and the blue pocket handkerchief with white spots, which he himself has so graphically described, these attracted most of my attention and awakened some feelings of amusement. So that's from the girl that married Spurgeon. His critics were unmerciful. Let me read you one example from an article that was published in April 1855 in the Sheffield and Rotherham. Uh, Rotherham Independent. This, this was the year after Spurgeon went to London. And the critic writes this about him. So Spurgeon, by the way, is still a very young man. He says this Quote, Just now, the great lion, star, meteor, or whatever else he may be called of the Baptists is the Reverend M. Spurgeon. The guy didn't even get his first name right. The Reverend M. Spurgeon, minister of Park Street Chapel, Southwark. He has created a perfect furor in the religious world. Every Sunday, crowds throng to Exeter Hall, where for some weeks past he has been preaching during the enlargement of his own chapel as to some great dramatic entertainment. The huge hall is crowded to overflowing. Morning and evening, with an excited auditory whose good fortune in obtaining admission is often envied by the hundreds outside who throng the closed doors. For a parallel to such popularity, we must go back to Dr. Chalmers, Edward Irving, or the earlier days of James Parsons. But I will not dishonor such men by comparison with the Exeter Hall religious demagogue. They preach the gospel with all the fervor of earnest natures. Mr. Spurgeon preaches himself. He is nothing unless he is an actor, unless exhibiting that matchless impudence, which is his great characteristic, indulging in coarse familiarity with holy things, declaiming in a ranting and colloquial style, strutting up and down the platform as though he were at Surrey Theater, and boasting of his own intimacy with heaven with nauseating frequency. His fluency, self-possession, oratorical tricks, and daring utterances – Seem to fascinate his less thoughtful hearers who love excitement more than devotion. I've glanced at one or two of Mr. Spurgeon's published sermons and turned away in disgust from the coarse sentiments, the scholastical expressions and claptrap style I have discovered. It would seem that the poor young man's brain is turned by the notoriety he has acquired and the very incense offered at his shrine, from the very pulpit he boasts of the crowds that flock to listen to his rhodomontade. By the end of the year... Not less than 200,000 of his published trashy sermons would be scattered over the length and breadth of the land. I don't think he's ever been invited to take part in any denominational meetings, nor indeed does he seek such fellowship. He glories in his position of lofty isolation. He is intoxicated by the drafts of popularity that have fired his feverish brain. He's a nine days wonder, a comet. That is suddenly shot up across the religious atmosphere. He has gone up like a rocket and before long shall come down like a stick. And then he closes the article with this. The most melancholy consideration in the case of the diseased craving for excitement, which is the, which this running after Mr. Spurgeon by the religious world indicates, I would charitably conclude that the greater part of the multitude that weekly crowd to his theatrical exhibitions consists of people who are not in the habit of frequenting a place of worship. That was a secular newspaper critic. And, of course, we know from history, that he was utterly wrong in almost everything he said about Spurgeon. But that was the way Spurgeon was attacked in the newspapers. In fact, on the very same day that article appeared, another London periodical known as the Buck's Chronicle published an equally vitriolic attack on Spurgeon by an anonymous writer who said this, quote, We had thought that the day for dogmatic, theologic dramatizing was past, that we should never more see the massive congregation listening to outrageous manifestations of insanity. No more hear the fanatical effervescence of ginger pop sermonizing or be called upon to wipe away the froth that people might see the color of the stuff. In this, we were mistaken. A star has appeared in the misty plane of orthodoxy. It has made its appearance in Exeter Hall. That's where Spurgeon preached while his while his church was being rebuilt. This particular writer, by the way, was clearly an Arminian who was provoked by Spurgeon's Calvinism because listen to how he caricatures Spurgeon's message. He says he says Spurgeon teaches that if Jack Scroggins was put down in the black book before the Great Curtain of Events was unfolded, that the said Jack Scroggins, in spite of all he may do or say, will and must tumble into the limbo of a brimstone hell to be punished and roasted without any prospect of cessation or shrinking back into a dried cinder because Jack Scroggins had merely done what Jack Scroggins could not help doing. It is not pleasant to be frightened into the portal of bliss by the hissing bubbles of the seething cauldron. It is not Christian-like to say God must wash brains in the hyper-Calvinism Spurgeon teaches before a man can enter heaven. It does not harmonize with the quiet majesty of the Nazarene. It does not fall like manna for hungry souls, but it is like the gush of the pouring rain in a thunderstorm, which makes the flowers to hang their heads, looking up afterwards as if nothing had happened. When the Exeter Hall stripling talks of deity, let him remember that he is superior to profanity, that blasphemy from a person is as great a crime as when the lowest grade of humanity utters the brutal oath at which the virtuous... Stand aghast. Now, that might actually comfort some of you who thought vitriol and verbal abuse were invented these days to fill up the Internet. It's interesting, isn't it, that that same flavor of controversy, in fact, that's really nastier than anything I've read in the Christian portions of the Internet, but that sort of controversy was popular in Spurgeon's time as well. Spurgeon didn't take delight in that sort of debate, but he wasn't intimidated by it either. He was gifted with words, he was quick-witted, and he was capable, uh, he, was, he was really adept at using humor, sharp-edged humor, to turn aside this sort of criticism. He was capable of leveling stinging reproaches against his doctrinal adversaries in a good natured and humorous kind of way. In fact, Spurgeon staunchly defended the use of humor, sarcasm, even ridicule against evil.
0: <laughs> hmm. <laughs> My kind of guy. I've got to pause right here. <laughs> I, I Otherwise, I'm going to sit here and I'm going to start gloating and I'm going to pat myself on the back and tell myself how clever I am. And then I'm going to have to go to confession and then I'm going to have to, f- f- you know, repent of my stupidity, of my pride, of my arrogance. Yeah, it's yeah, I probably should go do that anyway. I got to pay some bills. <laughs> oh, man, this is a great lecture. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so my email address talkback@fightingforthefaith.com. or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook it's facebook.com forward slash piratechristian or you can follow me on Twitter my name there piratechristian I'm going to go do some private confession and absolution where's my pastor's phone number I'll be right back We don't need to rethink Christianity, we need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith.
1: You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs>
0: If your church's praise band plays songs that worship you rather than God, then you might need a new church. If your church's praise band plays songs that worship you rather than God and your pastor always preaches the law but never the gospel,
1: you see, it takes more than belief. It takes more than faith to really please God.
0: Then you might need a new church. If your church's praise band plays songs that worship you rather than God, your pastor always preaches the law but never the gospel, and your pastor cares nothing about you personally.
1: We have people come to this church going, I want a church where I can know the pastor. I could never go to a church where I can know the pastor. You need to leave. I don't have time. I love my wife, I love my kids, and I will not sacrifice my, my family on the ministry altar so I can come eat food that I don't like and hang out with people that make me uncomfortable.
0: And then you might need a new church. If your church's praise band plays songs that worship you rather than God, your pastor always preaches the law but never the gospel, your pastor cares nothing about you personally, and Jesus and the Bible only make cameo appearances during the sermon. I heard a story about a farmer that had an old mule that had fallen into
1: an empty well. It was about 40 or 50 feet deep, and the farmer was so disappointed. He really loved this old mule.
0: Then you definitely need to find a real church. This has been a public service announcement from Pirate Christian Radio. If you think that Christianity's doctrine somehow could be tied to the culture, the philosophies of the time, yeah, you got another thing coming. That's not Christianity. That's just silliness. Anyway, need to remind you all: Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially. That's right, this is a partnership. Yeah, you know, I I do all the work. I do the production. I do the uh, recording. I do the you know all of that stuff. We you know, that we, I do all of that, and then you learn, you grow, you laugh, you cry, you weep, you pray, you repent, you're forgiven, all of that stuff, and uh, and as a result of it, uh, you then. Turn around and partner with us so that we can continue to reach more people with this important radio program. So, the way you'd partner with us, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. And uh, when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission at $6.95 a month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to partner with us with, you can make a one time contribution by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that along to Post Office Box 508. Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Now, right now we're in the middle of a fascinating lecture on uh, Charles Spurgeon by uh, Phil Johnson of the Pyromaniacs blog. And uh, he works at Grace to You and is a, um, a compatriot with John MacArthur. Fascinating lecture because uh, this is uh, one of uh, Phil Johnson's loves as far as study and things like that. So it's always, a, a, it's really very interesting when you're able to hear somebody who is an expert or near-expert on a topic uh, lecturing on it, because they can give you insights that you just wouldn't believe in that. Phil is doing a fantastic job, and this is a fascinating lecture worth listening to, and I don't care if you're not a Baptist, you're, you're something else. We have much that we can learn from Charles Spurgeon, and uh, much that we can praise God for in Charles Spurgeon. So uh, let's uh, continue with our Charles Spurgeon lecture by Phil Johnson.
1: He didn't think it was appropriate to default to that kind of argument. And he was never mean-spirited towards his adversaries themselves, even when he was heaping scorn and derision upon their false doctrines. He, he believed the level of spleen venting we do should be commensurate with the gravity and the immediacy of the error, which is a good way to look at it. Here's, a, here's another incident that illustrates Spurgeon's patience with his adversaries, It is his good humor in the face of that kind of criticism. When Spurgeon first came to London, one of the best known preachers in the city was a hyper-Calvinist man named James Wells, who pastored Surrey Tabernacle in South London, which was not far from where the Metropolitan Tabernacle stands today, where it was eventually built. James Wells, so he was not far from Spurgeon's neighborhood. He was the he was a gifted preacher who, at the height of his fame, drew 1,500 people each Sunday. But he was sometimes cantankerous and savage when he criticized. And frankly, that seems to be the besetting sin of hyper-Calvinists. But in January 1855, at the start of Spurgeon's first year, his first full year at New Park Street, James Wells sent a long letter to the editor of the Earthen Vessel, which was a high Calvinist periodical. He wrote the letter anonymously under the pseudonym Job, but it was well known who the true author was. And in that letter, he cited Spurgeon's testimony of conversion at age 15. And then Wells said this, quote, Heaven grant, it may prove to be so, for the young man's sake and for that of others also, but I have most solemnly have my doubts as to the divine reality of his conversion. I do not say, it is not for me to say, that he is not a regenerated man, but this I do know, that there are conversions which are not of God. So he's questioning Spurgeon's conversion. Spurgeon didn't answer to that, but of course the paper was besieged with more letters from their readers, both pro and con, and so the next month, Wells wrote again, stubbornly refusing to soften or withdraw his suggestion that Spurgeon might be an unconverted man. He said this, quote, I am at present, instead of being shaken, more than ever confirmed in what I have written. I beg, therefore, to say that anything said upon the subject by Mr. Spurgeon's friends will be to me as straws thrown against a stone wall of which I shall take no notice. And as far as I know... James Wells never did relax his bitter contempt for Spurgeon. One time they encountered one another on the street after Spurgeon had been at the tabernacle for some time. And Wells asked Spurgeon whether he'd ever seen the inside of Surrey Tabernacle, where Wells was the pastor. And trying to be polite, Spurgeon said, No, but you would very much like to see it. And Wells said, Well, if you'll come around on a Monday morning, I'll show you around the place. He said, that'll give us enough time to ventilate the place before Sunday. So Spurgeon then asked Wells if he'd ever seen the inside of the Metropolitan Tabernacle. Wells said, yes, he had come there on a recent Saturday and looked around. Ah, Spurgeon said, well, that accounts for the delightful fragrance in our services that week. (laughs) So he was an immensely patient man and and a careful critic. He preferred to dismantle errors meticulously with Scripture rather than blasting every target with large cannons. In fact, regarding the mean-spirited style of discourse, Spurgeon said, that is a style to which one can be easily educated. I do not think anybody ought to pay very heavy fees to be a nasty critic. One can grow into that with a very little watering, very speedily. As I've said, Spurgeon didn't relish controversy or seek it. Those earliest controversies came to him, and they were mainly sparked by other people's petty resentments against this young man who was already enjoying such remarkable success and who was, even at a young age, already so firm in his opinions. Incidentally, this is one of the remarkable things about Spurgeon. From the start of his ministry to the end, His theology remained substantially the same. I don't know of any major issue on which Spurgeon ever changed his position. He was not a reed shaken in the water. It was the furthest thing from his personality to be carried about by every wind of doctrine. I'm not aware of a single instance where Spurgeon ever had to retract or revise anything that he had printed. There may be some incidental details that he changed or refined, but Spurgeon didn't budge on any major doctrine from the start of his ministry until the day he died. I mentioned that fact once on my blog, and an army of angry, postmodernized young readers were absolutely outraged at that thought. Because the conventional wisdom today suggests that it's the very essence of humility to undergo regular paradigm shifts where from time to time you have to acknowledge that you've been totally wrong in some fundamental aspect of your belief system and you have to renounce and ridicule everything you believed last year. And you can do that and still claim to be humble. But if you hold steadfastly to the same worldview you embraced ten years ago and refuse to budge, that is regarded as irrefutable proof that you are the arrogant one. For the record, the reason Spurgeon remained so steady in his beliefs is that he didn't speak at all on an issue until he had studied it and settled the matter in his heart. He didn't fire from the hip. In fact, at those in those early years at the New Park Street and at Exeter Hall, you follow what he preached, and he was preaching through... Basic issues of theology, the very basics of biblical truth. His very first published sermon was on the immutability of God, a key and crucial issue, but really the starting point of theology proper. And from there he he built, starting with the basics, he avoided anything speculative or doubtful. He never reached beyond his own understanding like a lot of young preachers do, you know, trying to deal with advanced issues before he's had a reasonable opportunity to study the matter thoroughly and come to a firm, unshakable conviction. But that is not to suggest that Spurgeon aspired to be vague or ambivalent on important issues. He loved soundness and thoroughness and clarity and firm conviction. And he cultivated all those things in his own approach to theology. And that is the very thing that made conflict and controversy inevitable for Spurgeon. He was a voice of clarity and firm conviction during an era when practically everyone else was willing to put all the core doctrines of Christianity back on the table for negotiation. That eagerness to reinvent or reimagine Christianity in order to make it more suitable to the modern mind was the central error of the modernists. It is likewise the most dangerous aspect of today's postmodernists. And Spurgeon was of the opposite mind. He was convinced that faithful Christians need to hang on to and contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. Not on petty issues, matters of style and things like that but on the big issues, the important doctrinal issues. And so that's what he preached about. And he preached with firm conviction and unshakable confidence, and therefore conflict was inevitable. Ian Murray wrote the best book about Spurgeon, The Controversialist. And I'm certain many of you have read it. If not, it is one of the books back there on the book table that I'm recommending. The Forgotten Spurgeon. Murray traces three major controversies that spanned Spurgeon's entire career. There was a conflict over Spurgeon's Calvinism. There was a massive debate that Spurgeon himself sparked with the Anglican church over baptismal regeneration. And finally, there's the downgrade controversy. Now, there were, of course, a lot more controversies than those, but those are the major representative ones that Ian Murray deals with. And his book is the best single resource to read if you want proof that Spurgeon was not the safe, tolerant, always congenial type of person 20th century evangelicals always seem to want to make him out to be. The fact is Spurgeon's own autobiography made the very same point Ian Murray was making, that Spurgeon was no stranger to controversy. The original autobiography, if you've ever seen it, it's a massive four-volume work in large large pages with lots of pictures. It's a great set of books to have, it was compiled posthumously by Mrs. Spurgeon and by Spurgeon's personal secretary, a man named Joseph Harold. When you see the word autobiography, you may think Spurgeon sat down and wrote the story of his life. He didn't. But over the years in magazine articles and things like that, he he told anecdotes and history from his life, and his wife and his secretary compiled all those things after he died and put put them together in somewhat logical order. And, uh, but it reads more like a scrapbook than an autobiography, and, and especially so with all the pictures in it. It's a delightful set of books. But Joseph Harold, uh, was, I, I think, probably the main contributor to the, the stuff that Spurgeon himself hadn't earlier published. Having stood shoulder to shoulder with Spurgeon during those grueling years of the downgrade controversy, Mr. Harold was eager to make clear this whole side of Spurgeon for his posterity because this was the best way to appreciate Spurgeon's courage, his steadfastness, his willingness to suffer for Christ's sake. And so there's quite a lot in the autobiography about the controversies and conflicts that Spurgeon suffered. Chapter 53 in that that set of books is the original version. It it bears all the earmarks of having been written by Joseph Harold. By the way, Banner of Truth took those four volumes and reordered some of the chapters. I believe all the material, but not all the pictures, are still in the Banner of Truth edition. Banner of Truth came out in two volumes, uh, the autobiography of Spurgeon. One is called The Earlier Years, and the other is called, what is it? Yeah, The Great Harvest. Uh, And those two volumes together compile virtually all the material that was in the autobiography. But if you look around, you can find copies of the original autobiography. And if you do, chapter 53 in that original autobiography seems to me like it was written by Joseph Harold. It's titled, The Downgrade Controversy Foreshadowed. And it chronicles the early controversies that Spurgeon was involved in. The chapter opens with some... Quotations from Spurgeon himself about the necessity of controversy. Harold quotes Spurgeon recognizing, for example, that lots of Christians in his era were more concerned about decorum and respectability than they were about truth. They considered it a crude and vile thing to refute false doctrine or to point out the faults of the church and of the age. Spurgeon's answer was this, If this be vile, we propose to be viler still. That was 1856, less than two years after Spurgeon took the pulpit in London. So early on, he knew he was going to be embroiled in controversy, and he did not shy away from it. Here's another quote Harold cites from 11 years later. This is still fully 20 years before the downgrade controversy. Spurgeon says this, quote, As good stewards, we must maintain the cause of truth against all comers. Never get into religious controversies, says one. That is to say, being interpreted, be a Christian soldier, but let your sword rust in its scabbard and sneak into heaven like a coward. Such advice, Spurgeon says, I cannot endorse. If God has called you by the truth, Maintain the truth, which has been the means of your salvation. We're not to be pugnacious, always contending for every crotchet of our own. But herein we have learned the truth of the Holy Spirit. We are not tamely to see that standard torn down, which our fathers upheld at peril of their blood. This is an age in which truth must be maintained zealously, vehemently, continually, playing fast and loose as many do, believing this today and that tomorrow is the sure mark of children of wrath. But being received, but having received the truth, to hold fast the very form of it, as Paul bids Timothy to do, is one of the duties of the heirs of heaven. Stand fast for truth, and may God give the victory to the faithful. Now, Spurgeon's perception, in the, his stature in the public perception, rose steadily over the years, of course. And it got to the point where when Spurgeon spoke, people listened and didn't reflexively write off his strong opinions as the dreams of an idealistic youth. And as a result, Spurgeon's ministry went through a relatively peaceful time from the early 1870s through about 1886, during which Spurgeon wasn't constantly, every day, embroiled in major controversies. There were controversies even then, but they weren't publicized on the front pages of the city newspapers or talked about on such a public scale until the downgrade controversy. And when that broke out in 1887, Spurgeon's critics then, many of them not remembering the younger Spurgeon, not really familiar with his style and his ministry, uh, they tried to write off his opposition to the modernist juggernaut as the half-demented ravings of a once-kindly preacher who suddenly was showing signs of losing his mind and losing his inhibitions. And so, Joseph Harold pointedly answers that claim definitively in chapter 53 of the autobiography. Here's how he begins the chapter. Immediately after those three quotations from the younger Spurgeon about the importance of fighting for the truth, then Harold says this quote, When in 1887 there arose the great downgrade controversy in which Mr. Spurgeon was to prove himself Christ's faithful witness and martyr, Many people were foolish enough to suppose that he had adopted a whole new role, and some said that he would have done more good simply by preaching the gospel and leaving the so-called heretics to go their own way. Such critics must have been strangely unfamiliar with his whole history, for from the very beginning of his ministry, he had earnestly contended for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Long before the sword and the trowel appeared, with its monthly record of combat with sin and of labor for the Lord, that was the subtitle of the magazine, Its editor had been busily occupied both in battling and building, vigorously combating error with all its forms, and at the same time edifying and establishing in the faith those who had been brought to a knowledge of the truth as it is in Jesus. And then Harold goes on to give the details of Spurgeon's earliest controversies. I don't have time to go through them. I really only have time to introduce you to one of them and give you the gist of it. And then you need to read that chapter and the rest of Spurgeon's autobiography if you want to get a better sense of Spurgeon the controversialist. Joseph Harold says that the first actual theological or philosophical controversy Spurgeon was drawn into was, of all things, a dispute about music, church music. Who would ever fight over that, huh? More specifically, it was a debate over the propriety and substance of a hymn book written by a Congregationalist minister named Thomas Toke Lynch. This hymn book was a collection of mediocre doggerel, mostly celebrating God's handiwork in nature. The the hymn book was titled The Rivulet. Look that one up, by the way, in Google. Just Google Rivulet Controversy. Because the whole matter is a fascinating story. I, I, when I was preparing these notes, I really got drawn into it and, and spent a couple of days reading about it. And I was amazed at how much detail there is on the Internet about this. Uh, but It is a fascinating story. It's filled with many lessons about contemporary worship wars and the disputes that occur today over music in the church. If, if you look at Google Books or the Internet Archive, you will even find a full copy of the hymn book, The Rivulet, So you can read this hymn book for yourself. There's also a copy of the full memoir of Thomas T. Lynch online, the guy who was at the heart of the controversy, wrote his own memoir, and he includes an extensive narrative of the controversy from his own point of view. But anyway, the poetry in the rivulet was mostly awful. The hymns were mostly insipid, and clear doctrine and biblical truth were mostly absent from Lynch's hymns. Here's a sample. This is a hymn about the virtues of meditation. Our heart is like a little pool left by the ebbing sea of crystal waters still and cool when we rest musingly. I think that's almost as funny as it is bad because he's comparing your heart to a tide pool. Tide pools are actually best known for the horrible stench they generate, you know? But that sort of thing was wildly popular with a certain genteel class of religious people in Victorian times. Not all of Lynch's hymns were that bad, of course. A couple of them have actually survived in some 20th century hymn books. We used to sing one when I was a student at Moody, Gracious Spirit, Dwell With Me, I Myself Would Gracious Be. It's not a bad hymn. And Spurgeon, by the way, didn't start the Rivulet controversy. It was started by a newspaper editor, James Grant, who published an unfavorable review of the Rivulet in a periodical titled The Morning Advertiser. Grant said things like this, quote, From beginning to end, there is not one particle of vital religion or evangelical piety in the book. He said that, quote, Nearly the whole of the hymns might have been written by a deist. He said, quote, a very large portion might be sung by a congregation of freethinkers, which was a Victorian word for atheists. Now, Grant was using a kind of hyperbole, I think, because I've read Lynch's, Lynch's hymns and and they're not, they're not that bad. They're bad. We wouldn't and we don't sing most of them today, but they weren't really atheistic hymns. I have to say, however, that. Grant's criticism, given what I believe he intends, isn't really that far off. Most of the hymns could be sung by a deist. There are a few blessed exceptions, but they are the exceptions and not the rule. And controversy over this ensued for months. Another editor, Dr. John Campbell, a publisher of the British Banner, jumped into the fray. And I want you to meet John Campbell. You know him because he's like... A, A hundred fundamentalists that we all know. Here's a description of him from an 1892 book titled History of Congregationalism from the Apostolic Age to the Present. And this book says about him As a newspaper editor, he was a veritable Boanerges, pouring forth the burning lava of his invective on all abuses, heresies, and vices. I love that description. Uh, And however, they also go on to say, as an editor of religious magazines, he achieved an almost unprecedented success, not by any meretricious attractions, not by any pictorial illustrations, not by the sensationalism of religious storytelling, but by strictly scriptural teaching. So he was a sober-minded scriptural guy with a tendency maybe to be a little overcritical. Dr. Campbell himself was clearly also given to hyperbole in his critiques. Here's that same book's account of his entry into the rivulet controversy. The writer says that the debate had the effect of stirring up the latent fires in the great heart of Dr. Campbell, editor of the British Banner. He rushed into this rivulet controversy with even more than his wanted energy and asserted with an exaggeration lamentably ludicrous that, quote, Nothing like it had occurred within the memory of the present generation or perhaps since the days of the Reformation. In the gentler part of his critique, Dr. Campbell said that Thomas Lynch's hymns were crude, disjointed, unmeaning, unchristian, ill-rhymed rubbish. Those are his exact words. So he didn't like these hymns. And by now, this whole controversy was really out of proportion to the issue. The rhetoric and the passions on both sides were already overheated. And so far, Spurgeon had not uttered a peep about it. But because of his popularity and his influence, many of his closest friends and fellow ministers were insistent that he needed to take one side or the other. Now, if I read things correctly, it seems to me Spurgeon wasn't at all happy about the position this forced him into. He did not approve of the exaggerated criticism that these editors were using. And he didn't like, he didn't like it when inflated passions clouded or crowded out rational arguments in the war for the truth. And yet, from a purely biblical and theological point of view, Spurgeon clearly agreed with the critics of the rivulet. And so, after watching the controversy rage for about five months, Spurgeon finally entered the fray with a gentler, more reasonable critique of the hymnal, which he titled, Mine Opinion. Lynch later said that Spurgeon was the only one of his major critics who actually treated him with true respect. Lynch said this, This review of Mr. Spurgeon enjoys the credit with me of being the only thing on his side, that is, against me, that was impertinent without being malevolent. It evinced far more ability and appreciation than Grant or Campbell had done, and it indicated a man whose eyes, if they do not get blinded with the fumes of that strong but unwholesome incense popularity, may glow with a heavenlier brightness than seems to me they have yet done. So here's a sample of what Spurgeon wrote. And notice how he uses humor to defuse the dark passions. He said this, quote, These hymns rise up in the rivulet like mermaids. There is much form and comeliness upon the surface, but their nether parts, I discern, are hard to describe. Perhaps they are not the fair things they seem. When I look below their glistening eyes and flowing hair, I think I discern some meaner nature joined with the form divine, but the surface of this rivulet is green with beautifully flowering weeds And I can scarcely see into the depths where lurks the essence of the matter. He was, this is brilliant critique because he was actually using a parody of Lynch's own style to show the silliness of hymns like that. Lynch got the point. In Lynch's account of the controversy, he said Spurgeon saw enough in the glistening eyes of the mermaids to suspect that they might have a fishy body and a snaky tail but he confessed that he didn't see the tale. Spurgeon went on, If I should ever be on amicable terms with the chief of the Ojibwewaz, that was an imaginary Indian tribe, I might suggest several verses from Mr. Lynch as a portion of a liturgy to be used on the next occasion when he bows before the great spirit of the west wind. Hark, O ye Delawares, Mohawks, Choctaws, and Chickasaws, Blackfeet, Pawnees, Shawnees, and Cherokees. Here is your primitive faith, most sweetly rehearsed, not in your own wild notes, but in the white man's language. And then he quoted one of the hymns. My God, in nature I confess a beauty fraught with holiness. Love written plainly I descry, my life's commandment in the sky Oh, still me the days endear when lengthening light leads on the year. Which, again, there's nothing heretical in that hymn. It's just a poem about nature. It maybe is a nice thought. It's not the sort of thing you'd want to make into a congregational hymn. And Spurgeon closed his article by suggesting that it was time for this raging controversy to end because this little volume really didn't warrant so much fuss. He wrote this, quote, Liberty of conscience is every man's right. Our writer has spoken his mind, and why should he alone provoke attack when many others who quite agree as little with our own views are allowed to escape? The battle is either a tribute to superior ability or else a sign of the times. I believe it to be both. The work, The Rivulet, has its errors in the estimation of one who does not fear to subscribe himself to a, a uh, subscribe himself a Calvinistic Christian. But it has no more evil leaven than other books of far less merit. No one would have read it with a jealous eye unless it had been made the center of a controversy, for we should either have let it quietly alone or should have forgotten the deleterious mixture and retained the little good which it certainly contains. The author did not write for us. He wrote for men of his own faith. And thus ended Spurgeon's first controversy. It was a relatively minor one for him. But Spurgeon found it necessary soon afterwards to attack even more sinister trends towards humanism and Socinian doctrines. And then came the famous baptismal regeneration controversy, which was uh, uh, sparked by a sermon Spurgeon himself preached against Anglican ceremony. There was a series of controversies over creeping high church and Romanist tendencies in the Anglican establishment. There were conflicts with hyper-Calvinists. There were disputes with stylish innovators like Dr. Parker. There was Spurgeon's resistance to several Arminian and revivalist tendencies. There was opposition that came to Spurgeon from certain Darbyite brethren, churchmen. There was the struggle against scientific rationalism. And there was a sustained defense of the authority of Scripture, all finally culminating in the downgrade controversy. And in fact, as Joseph Harold points out, the lesser conflicts were merely prelude and preparation for the downgrade controversy, in which all these other issues came together. And I wish we had sufficient time to survey them all. And you know, maybe one day I'll, I'll. I'll write a book on the subject, because there's more than enough material for, the, for a book. But let me summarize the point of today's message for you. Spurgeon's ministry was controversial in his day, not because he was pugnacious. He wasn't. He was a tender-hearted, patient, good-humored man with a large heart. But he was devoted to the truth, and that made him a dedicated enemy of error. The Lord had blessed him with a voice and with a brain and with the influence to be the kind of warrior he was, and providence often placed him in circumstances that demanded a battle. And thankfully for the church, Spurgeon was willing to fight, even literally at the cost of his own life. You may have noticed in an excerpt I read earlier, Joseph Harold referred to Spurgeon as a martyr, and I believe that's accurate. Spurgeon believed that as well. I had the privilege a few years ago of reading through a stack of letters Spurgeon wrote to his flock at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in the final weeks before he died. Uh, all those letters, he'd, he'd write one, one a week and it would be sent back to the church. All those letters are still held by the church. They're kept in a file cabinet in a regular file. And uh, um, I, I had the privilege of looking through them One day, actually holding them in my hands, and and, uh, it's that last bittersweet set of letters he wrote that I think better than anything I've ever read by Spurgeon reveal his heart. He knew he was dying, and he himself said it was the fight that was killing him. The incredible stress of the downgrade controversy combined with medical problems he already had from gout and Bright's disease, he couldn't handle that stress. His attempts to awaken evangelicals to the dangers of modernism were, as far as he could see, mostly in vain. From the perspective of earthly opinion polls at the time, the stand Spurgeon took did very little immediate good. He died feeling to a large degree that his whole campaign against modernism had been mostly in vain. It, cost, it certainly cost him respect and stature, and it drove many of the men he had trained himself away from him. They became Some of them became modernists because they felt Spurgeon was being too rigid. But he wasn't demoralized. He knew he would be vindicated in time because he knew the gates of hell cannot prevail against the truth and against the church. And what he actually accomplished in that fight was monumental, although he didn't live to see it. And we who desire to remain faithful to the truth of God's word still benefit from Spurgeon's work. We need to follow his example. Controversy is even more politically incorrect today than it was in Spurgeon's time, but for that very reason, the church is desperately in need of articulate men committed to the truth who will fight the good fight over important issues, not petty ones, as much as Spurgeon did, even though we know that's not going to win us any accolades any accolades from the evangelical community, much less from the world. We have to be fighters. We are commanded to contend earnestly for the faith. And my prayer is that God would give us grace to be what Spurgeon was, even to whatever degree we are gifted to do so. Let's pray. Lord, it is not a pleasant prospect to think of having to contend earnestly for the faith. And yet, we love the faith. We love the truth. Give us...
0: Bummer. That was a good prayer. It cut off. I apologize that it cut off there, but I had no control over that. Fascinating lecture. Great topic. Thank you, Phil Johnson. And uh, this is absolutely true. You don't go looking for the fight. Believe me when I tell you, you I don't even go looking for these fights, and I don't particularly enjoy them. But we need to contend for the truth. And we need to contend because there are people going to hell. And they're going to hell while sitting in church. And they're going to hell while living next door to you. So we need to contend for the truth. And understand that the the battle's not ours. The battle's the Lord's to win. We're soldiers in this fight. We're not generals. We're not officers. We're just foot soldiers. And so the only thing we have is God's word. And it's not our words. It's his words. And we have to understand that the, the devil in every generation has a new set of lies that he wants to promote as the new, the latest, greatest thing. And, uh, doctrine is not like our computers. If you think about our computers, you know, I, I'm an avid Apple fan. I, You know, I worked two jobs to get my first Macintosh computer, a 512K E. E. Enhanced. That means it read double-sided floppy disks. Boy, was that exciting. But, um, uh, With each generation of computers that come out, there's new whiz-bang things that get attached to it. I mean, I I, I salivate every single time that uh, Steve Jobs holds a a press conference to announce the latest and greatest things that Apple has invented and is getting ready to put onto the the market. I, I, I admit, I suffer from technology lust. But see, doctrine is not this way. We're not looking for Christianity 1.2, 2.0, 3.0, 4.0. There's just Christianity. There's the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And it's to be proclaimed, defended, preached to all the world. And all Christians are beholden to the revealed Word of God. And we're admonished to pass this faith along without changing it. You don't change the baton before you pass it off to the next generation, because when you do that, you're not passing the baton on. You're passing on your own ideas. Your subjective theologizing ego is not authoritative, nor can it authoritatively speak regarding God. God has spoken and so we proclaim the truth we defend the truth because all these things matter yeah great lecture great topic need to remind you fighting for the faith is a listener supported radio that means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring fighting for the faith to you as well as to the world you can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. You know the shtick. When you get there, there's two friendly yellow buttons, pick one, fill it out. We can always, oh, we always can use your financial help. Yeah, we haven't gotten to the point where we don't need it. <laughs> In fact, we'll never get there. And, uh, and so, and even, you know, a small contribution really does truly help us. All right. Well, what'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback. My email address, if you would like to email me, Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask me, my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, pirate Christian. Until next week, may God richly bless you in the grace and the mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for your sins. Yeah, really, it's all about Jesus for you and what he's done for you. Amen.